Welcome to the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, expository Bible sermons from the preaching and teaching ministry of High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, for the glory of God and the proclamation of His Word. We thank you for listening. And now, High Point Baptist Church pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr. Come and worship our Lord Jesus Christ as King. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue to do that very thing. The children are dismissed for Children's Church. Matthew chapter 5 is our text this morning. You can find in your bulletins the title for this morning's message, When Love Came Down for Christmas. And follow along with me as we read Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It might strike you odd that we would turn to such a passage as this. For our Christmas series, as we come to joyful anticipation of the coming holiday. But when you think about it, one of the reasons that Christmas is so uniquely beloved by us and beloved by so many is because it brings us back every year to the one, one of the fundamental truths about Christianity, and that is love and compassion. We are moved with compassion. We are moved with love because Christmas reminds us of what love is as we consider our majestic and incomprehensible and infinite King of Kings who has all knowledge and who is so glorious that even His angels can't even look upon His glory and they instead cover their faces with their wings, collapse to their knees, and lay prostrate to worship the Holy One. The one... God, the glorious God who told Moses, after Moses petitioned him, God, show me your glory. And he said to him, no one can look on my face and live. Therefore, I will show you my glory and I will pass before you and you can only look then at my backside. The God who, according to his wisdom and glorious might, created the world And by Him we read in Colossians that all things hold together. Who came according to the perfect counsel of His will to be born in a primitive era of time. In an ancient town. In order that He might be born in a stable and laid in an animal's feeding trough. We've romanticized significantly that imagery, so much so that we have lost the compassion of Christ 
that is illustrated for us even in his miraculous birth. His utterly despicable, filthy, full of shame and grief, because we read in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, that there was no room for him in the inn. What is that? What does that communicate to us? Because guess what? It communicates to us something significantly different than, than the image we normally capture in the nativity scene. A nativity scene that is somewhat warm, somewhat romantic, somewhat comfortable. You might even have heard it said that Jesus being born in a manger would have actually even been something that was of compassion. Because after all, if Mary was in an inn, which was an environment that was akin to a brothel in effect, I mean, the gross iniquity all over the place and overwhelmed with people packed in there. And I mean, can you imagine giving birth in that kind of environment? And so therefore, someone at least showed the Savior compassion and at least allowed him to be born in their stable which is likely cleaner than any inn would be. And so we hear that maybe it was something even of divine providence that, the, that our Savior would be born in such a setting. But that is not the setting. The word for room isn't room as in space in Luke chapter 2, verse 7. That's not why he was born in a stables. Certainly not an environment of compassion, but the lack thereof. Not room as in space. The word for room means no room as in place. A guest room in a house. Not likely an inn. It simply means a place to lodge. That's the word that we normally see translated as inn. And it means a place to lodge, which certainly could mean an inn. But Luke elsewhere uses the more specific word for inn, such as in Luke chapter 10, where in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan comes and takes a man who was beaten and left for dead, and he leaves an investment for the innkeeper, and the man is to take care then of the man whom would have otherwise died if not for the generosity and love and kindness and mercy that is shown by the Good Samaritan. There's a specific word for inn that Luke uses there and in a few other places in the New Testament, but here he uses the more generic word as a place for lodging, a simple place for lodging, and so we should understand it in that sense, a guest room in a house, a guest room in a house, and listen to me, the problem was that there was no space for them in the house. Was it busy? Sure. Were there a lot of people in Bethlehem? Absolutely. Because of Caesar's decree. But the issue was that there was no room, not in the sense of space, but no room as in there is no place for you here. 
They were being denied a room because here was Mary about to give birth because God had compassion on us while we were his enemies and sent his son into the world. But because Mary wasn't married to Joseph, the world showed no compassion, no love. Mary and Joseph were being disowned and they were being humiliated. And Jesus would have to be born in shame because no one would show him love even though he was love that has come into the world. He was born then in a compassionless environment in order that He might bring compassion. He was born into suffering in order that one day He might end it. An image of compassion and an image of love that we are reminded of at Christmas. So much so, That even in the context of the world, the context of the unregenerate community, you ask any one of them what Christmas is about and whether or not they believe in God, they'll at least consent to one degree or another that Christmas is about love. However they define it, Christmas is about love. And a slightly lesser known Christmas hymn that was written in 1885, which is where I got the title for this morning's message from, Love Came Down at Christmas, we sing, Love came down at Christmas, love all lovely, love divine. Love was born at Christmas, star and angels gave the sign. Worship we the Godhead, love incarnate, love divine. Worship we are Jesus, but wherewith for sacred sign. Love shall be our token. Love be yours and love be mine. Love to God and all men. Love for plea and gift and sign. That is really the substance of our message this morning that we find in Matthew chapter 5. Love for God and love for all men men. And if you paid attention to that final verse, you realize how significant that simple exhortation is. It is our token. It is what characterizes us. It is what identifies us as those who belong to God but what should be obvious to us is that this isn't love that is known by the world. Love that's prompted by good feelings and with good feelings inside us toward another person. Love that is reactive to the good way that we feel about someone. We have been called to a love that is remarkably demanding. A love that precedes feeling. A love that precedes emotion. 
a love that gives when it hurts deeply and is deeply wounded. Christ has shown us what love is. And so we would define love as being like Him. And so over this Sunday and next, I want to show you what that love looks like, the kind of love that belongs to the one who says they love God for the world, for the church, and for Christ. And contrary to the bulletin, uh, which published that tonight, we are going to be looking at Christ's love for the church. I doubt if we're actually going to get there, so I'll leave that up to the providence of God as well. And we'll just simply move along as much and as far as we can. So we might very well be looking at God's love, or the love that we are to have for the world again tonight, but it is going to be important that you come back, and hopefully you'll be convinced why. Regardless, we're going to cover it. It's just a matter of how long it's going to take us to cover it. I want us to understand a biblical concept of love. And I think it begins, and it is helpful to begin right here. You might title the series, How to Love as You Should at Christmas, or The Model of Love at Christmas. And this is important because for many, they'll confess that love came down at Christmas, but they are only confessing because of an impartial and incomplete understanding of love. They are only confessing an impartial and incomplete, imperfect love that came down at Christmas. Because they see love that came down at Christmas in order to provide salvation, and they believe that it ends there. But Christ makes clear, even in the night before His death, that He doesn't merely desire our salvation but also our sanctification. Salvation is where it begins. And in our sanctification, we grow in love. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And having said then, said that then, I'd like you to follow along with me where we see four reasons why we are to love as Christ loved in this last paragraph in Matthew chapter 5 in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And the first is because loving as Christ loved is mandatory. It's mandatory. Again, verses 43 and 44 You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. One of the most difficult texts in all of Scripture. One of the hardest sayings of Jesus. One of the most difficult things for us to understand, not because the text is in any way obscure, not because the text is confusing, not because it's incomprehensible for our finite minds, or logically incongruous, or irrational, or difficult for us to conceive, or anything like that. In fact, I would venture to say to you that you have generally found this not to be a difficult text at all. It's fairly straightforward. The expectations are clear. The exhortations are clear. You understand what is being said, in a sense, and therefore it's not a difficult text at all. Learned it from our childhood for many of us. And so, for many of us, the text comes quite easily, if not comfortably. 
And I will subject to you that where we find this passage coming to us easily or comfortably, it is because we have, in fact, not understood it. It is so difficult because it demands from us the complete opposite kind of love than is natural to us. It's difficult because it's talking about a love that is completely alien to the world. It's talking about an expectation of love that is alien to our flesh. That is contrary to our nature. It's an alien love, a foreign love, a misunderstood love. This is what real love looks like, and it's the kind of love that the world can't give because it's a love that the world doesn't know as long as it continues to reject God. such a difficult text, not because it's confusing, because it's difficult to apply. At best, maybe, the world would say that we should love those who are less fortunate than us or less privileged than us. See that kind of rhetoric quite often, in fact. The world wants to show love and mercy and compassion to those who are less privileged, to the poor, to the weak, and to the sick. But pure love, the kind of love that we've been called to as Christians, is a love, and note this, Because if you catch this one statement and you can promise me that you'll do the work in your own life to flesh it all out, then you can leave or tune yourself out for the entire rest of the sermon because you got it. This is the one time I'm giving you permission to to just tune me out and let the eyes glaze over if you catch this one thing. Love gives love to those who are most unworthy of it. That's a biblical definition of love. Love gives love to those who are unworthy of it, the most unworthy of it. And that summarizes the whole Christian virtue. Remember the context of Matthew chapter 5. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, and the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is to address the standard, to show the standard that is required of those who belong to the kingdom of heaven. These are the requirements of those who belong in the kingdom of heaven, not because by them we obtain salvation. As we're going to see in verse 48. But because this is a fruit that characterizes God's people. And so in that sense, they are required. This is a love that is your experience. And because it is your experience, it is only the natural consequence of the love that you have received, love that you are unworthy of. This is the fruit that characterizes God's people. The character we see in the Sermon on the Mount must be characteristic in your life. Or Jesus' conclusion that is found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23 
towards the end of his Sermon on the Mount, in his conclusion of his Sermon on the Mount, is that he doesn't know you. If this love isn't characteristic in your life, Jesus concludes that he doesn't know you. These are the things that characterize God's people and nowhere should the distinction between the people of the world and, be, and the people of God be more clear than in our text right now. In particular, the purpose is to show the difference in the standard between the kind of love that belongs to the world and the kind of love that belongs to the people of God. The world loves their neighbor. The world loves those who are less fortunate. The world loves those who are poor. The world loves those who are less privileged than themselves. Perhaps. Perhaps. If you turn to Luke chapter 10 verse 25, you'll find a very similar lesson except where Matthew chapter 5 is in the context of a sermon. Luke chapter 10, in Luke chapter 10 verse 25, we have a Jewish lawyer indignantly testing Jesus. A lawyer in this context, just so you know, would have been an expert in the law, capital L, an expert in God's law. And he says, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? The lawyer, along with all the rest of the Pharisees and scribes and priests, was infuriated with Jesus. And, and they're telling people that Jesus is, antinomian, is an antinomian. And what that means is that he is anti-law. He is anti-namas, anti-law. He's anti-law. He's anti-moralistic living. He's anti-law because while, the, while they're saying that salvation is by ceremony, while they're saying that salvation is by adherence to the commandments, Jesus is saying salvation is by grace. And so when this lawyer asks Jesus the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus knows that it is not an honest question. This is a question to pit him against God's expectations that we keep his law. Keep the Old Testament commandments. Show that Jesus is anti-God's word. He's against it. Jesus knows the, the question is posed in hypocrisy and dishonesty. And so he asks him, why don't you tell me what is written in the law? How does it read to you? That's verse 27. He answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, we're going to come back to that that little comment, that, that little phrase at the very end that defines the love that we have for our neighbor as yourself tonight. But for the moment, this is how the lawyer says we fulfill the law. This is, this is how we obtain salvation. And Jesus might come as a shock in this whole account. 
verse 28, Jesus says, you're right. You got it right. Then he tells him to go do it. And the lawyer then picks up on what Jesus is alluding to. By telling him to do it, Jesus implies that he hasn't. And he is appalled. What do you mean, go do it? I have done it. I have loved my neighbor. And that's why we read in verse 29 that wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Because obviously you're alluding to the fact that I haven't loved my neighbor as I should. So why don't you you tell me, Jesus, because I'm telling you that I have loved my neighbor. Who is my neighbor? You must know something that I don't. Who did I miss? So the lawyer defined his neighbor and therefore the object of his love in the same way that everybody else did, and he thought that made him good. He thought that made him special. He thought that made him unique. He thought that got him saved. But really, that only made him like everyone else. To the Jews, your neighbor was another Jew. Someone who believed the way you do and and more or less lives the same way that you do. Someone who is a, a member of the assembly, the ecclesia, the church, if you will, of Israel. Those who belong to your sect. Those who maintain the same convictions. Those who are like you. And Jesus says, you think that makes you righteous? That's expected. Loving your neighbor as you define it the ecclesia of Israel, that's expected. That's par. That's the norm. Everyone does that. You can read no uh, Jesus' comments following regarding the mandate that we are the love beyond what the world loves. Jesus says back in Matthew chapter 5 that this is just the same as the same kind of love that the Gentiles have. That is an insult. It is an insult. You love those whom show love to you or even those who, who are just of the same mind as you, like-minded. And you think you've demonstrated the love of God? That's ridiculous. Everyone does that. You know, if you think, and we put this into a post-Pentecost context, in the context of the church today, what Jesus is saying is that it's a given that as a Christian, you would love the assembly of God. That's a given. I mean, let's get back to basics here. The assembly of God's people, in other words, the local church, is the visible expression of the body of Christ. And you say you love Christ, so of course you love the local church. Now, that is too obviously necessary. And, and like I said, we're going to take a look more of that. Take a look more of that. But for the purpose of Jesus' argument in Luke chapter 10 and and in Matthew chapter 5, which you can go back to now if you haven't already turned back to Matthew chapter 5, is that that is expected. You, You are not exemplary in your love in the least. 
if you simply pat yourself on the back because, well, you love God's people, you love the church, you show dedication to the church. In verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was oral tradition. First part is a quote from the Old Testament. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor. Quote from uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. But the second part, and hate your enemy, that was the oral tradition. That's what the rabbis taught. But if you pay attention to the conjunction in Leviticus 19, it is not an adversative. Rather, in, in Matthew chapter 5, it is not an adversative. In other words, they, they weren't teaching that you were to love your neighbors, but were to hate your enemies. What they were doing was giving consent to the default human condition. They were relinquishing you from the duty to love your enemies. They're saying it's okay. Just like everyone else in the world acknowledges the permissibility of hating your enemy. That's okay. Hating your enemy is to be expected. Just love your neighbor and hate just your enemy. That's all. So they vindicate themselves. They saw in Psalm 139 and other imprecatory psalms as justification for that. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, David says. For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O God? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. That was a righteous response. And David is so confident of the righteousness in that response that he petitions the Lord that he would search every wicked way in him. This is justified hatred. But it's the only justified hatred in the Bible. And let me ask you something. Was this hatred born out of David's pride? No? Was it born out of David's own personal offense? Was it born out of ill treatment toward him? Or some tremendous injustice, gross perversion of justice that was incurred to him? He experienced. What is it born out of a demand that he be treated fairly? And with justice, was it born out of his personal pain and suffering that was imposed because of injustice? After all, he's a righteous man. Surely he's done nothing to deserve this. He's innocent. Is that where the hatred is born out of, or was it born out of zeal for God's glory? Was it born out of a righteous indignation when God is dishonored? Or was it born out of indignation for when he was personally dishonored? 
See, that's the difference. And the Jews failed to reconcile that tension between our duty to love our enemies and yet hate God's enemies. And you say, well, aren't they one and the same? Well, maybe. (laughs) Maybe. And so how do we reconcile loving them yet hating them? And the answer, interestingly enough, is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. The second reason why we are to love our enemies, the first was because we have a mandate. Loving our enemies is commanded, and the people of God are characterized by obedience. Loving as Christ loved is mandatory. And the second reason is because we love the glory of God. How do we reconcile the tension between loving our enemies and loving God's enemies? Rather, loving our enemies and hating God's enemies. It's simple. You hate them because you are motivated for His glory. And you love them because you see His glory in them. You got that? You hate them because you love His glory. And you love them. You love them personally because you see His glory in them. Hate them because you are motivated for His glory and love them because you see His glory. And you can even simplify that further still. You hate them because you love His glory, and you love them because you love His glory. Because I love His glory, I hate the world. I hate injustice. I hate sin. And contrary to the Q Christian cliche, where you love the sinner but hate the sin, you hate the sinner because biblically you cannot divorce the sinner from the sin. Hence why God sends the sinner to hell and not just the sin. I hate the sinner who rebels and rises up against God, and yet because I love His glory, I love the world. I love them passionately. And I love the person who is unregenerate, unregenerate, and if I can get it out, unregenerate. This is what happens when I get excited. <laughs> person because I, I, I love the image of God in them. Such a transcendent love. A love that has no boundaries, Jesus is telling us in Matthew chapter 5. We can look at several examples in the Scriptures that help us reconcile this tension by simply illustrating it. We look at David's own life in 1 Samuel chapter 24, for instance, where David is overwhelmed with remorse for something as small as raising up his hand against his enemy, his enemy Saul, just to cut off his piece of robe. While Saul happens to be in the same cave as David, in a rather vulnerable moment, no less. 
David grieves, and that's how sensitive he is to his personal hatred towards those who are trying to do him harm. Now, we, we don't even understand that. Neither did David's servants. And they were saying, David, are you kidding me? This is it. I mean, the Lord has delivered Saul into your hands. Now take his life and you'll be king as the Lord's anointed. David goes and cuts his robe and then repents of cutting Saul's robe. I mean, we would say, I mean, come on, let him have him. Saul is out to kill David. But the problem was, David cut his robe, not out of, not out of the desire to see God glorified, but out of a sake of a personal vendetta. This is the man who's trying to kill me. We could look at Paul as another example who showed love and compassion to the prison guard in Acts chapter 16 who's about to take his life. Not, his, not Paul's life. I mean, Paul was in prison. But the, the guard, you remember, was about to take his own life. He was about to kill himself because he was responsible for these prisoners and that would be required of him. And so rather than be dishonored by Rome for allowing his prisoners to escape, he was about to commit suicide. Paul, after, um, after the... Walls collapse, and the guard assumes that all the prisoners have gone free. Paul looks at him and goes, Well, sirs, you're right, buddy. We'll see you later. That's Acts chapter 16, right? That's how you remember the story? Would Paul have had the freedom, the liberty to relinquish himself from the suffering that was to be imposed upon him by being a prisoner of Rome? Maybe. You could argue that. Could he withdraw? Could he retreat? Could he abstain from his suffering? Perhaps, but then he would lose the evangelical opportunity to show this man love. And so he tells the guard, after the prison collapses, we're all here. We haven't gone anywhere. Reminds me of a story that I once read about a man being, who was, uh, his home was broken into in Russia, as I recall, the former Soviet Union, because he was a Christian, and he went out and fled and was running through the snow, ran across the ice, and one soldier ran out after him, and all of a sudden he heard a shout and a cracking noise as the man fell through the ice. And so what did the Christian man do? Well, serves you right, buddy. I'm out of here. The Lord has redeemed me from your hand. No, he went back, reached his hand into the icy water, and pulled him out. Paul does the same thing. Love for his enemies. I think we'll look at two more, though. Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 7. Since we only have 10 minutes left, we'll, we'll look at two. Acts chapter 7, we're about to see the very first martyr of the church, loving servant of the church, Stephen. He'd just been arrested, and his long defense shows the Jews how they had always rebelled against God. And in the same few verses, we see where he's indignant with righteous rage. 
we see immediately followed with compassion and mercy. And may I subject to you that we need both? If you love while excusing sin at the same time, your love doesn't come from the Father. And so he says, he says, you men, verse 51, who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Accuse them of murder. You can hear his indignation. They are furious in verse 54. And so they seek to kill him. They respond with rage. They drive him out of the city and begin stoning him. Perverted justice, perfect hate. And look at verse 60. Then, falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said that, he died. Surprising ending, perhaps, to this man's life who was so enraged at these people because of how they assault the character of God. But when they assault him, he's not enraged. He's moved to compassion and love and somehow kneels, falling to his knees and prays that God would show them mercy with his last breath. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Hatred for God's enemies because of how they assault the glory of God. Love for his enemies because he loves the image of God in them. Where else do we see that? Certainly in the life of Christ, right? And so we could look at him as our second example. Jesus repeatedly enraged by the Pharisees. Twice drove them out of the temple with a whip, cleansed, cleared out the temple from these corrupt, perverted extortioners. Threw over money tables for what they did to his father's house. But then, then during the perfect manifestation of their hatred for Jesus Christ, as he hung on the cross for their sins, and they continue to mock him, shows them compassion when they never once showed him compassion since the day he was born. And then in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, we hear his words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Love for God's glory, hating his enemies while loving yours. And back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, though we read, love your enemies, Jesus says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the wicked. Our first glance it seems that our second reason to love the world is because that's the character of God. 
And then you'd realize how the second half of the verse, verse 45, relates to the first. You may be his sons who display his character. And it's true that this is written in Greek, but Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and this would have been a familiar Jewish expression to them. This isn't saying that this is how you will earn your salvation. This isn't how you will become a son of God. To the contrary, as you can see in verse 48, again, it actually reinforces the complete impossibility of earning your salvation. Your only hope is to receive divine love that you, once again, are unworthy of. And why it can't be the character of the Christian then refuses to show love to those who are unworthy of it. That cannot be. And refusing to show love to those who are unworthy of it makes you a hypocrite and not a Christian, we'll see in verses 46 to 47. Refusing to show love to those who are unworthy of it, if that's your character, if that's your life, that makes you a hypocrite, not a Christian. The Christian's character is the character of God. And why do you desire to display his character? Why do you want to grow in your love? Why do you want to grow in your sanctification? For his glory. So why do you want to love your enemies? Because it shows the character of God, but ultimately because you love his glory. And that's also why you love your enemies personally. You love the character of God that they too display, albeit ignorantly, albeit marred and corrupted by the fall. But that was the purpose for which they were created. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, He created them. You understand that that is our whole motivation behind evangelism? Mark it. Mark it. We don't love in order to evangelize. I got your attention, good. We don't love in order to evangelize. We evangelize out of our love. Because we love the character of God. We don't love in order to evangelize. We evangelize out of our love. We love God's image. And we know that all men were created in His image in order to display His glory, as was the rest of all creation. And though the fall didn't destroy it, it marred it significantly. And so we cry out, along with all the rest of the creation, that God would restore it. We want to see its restoration as all of creation groans and cries out for restoration. So we evangelize because we are moved with compassion and love because we see See the image of God in them, though they are marred and corrupted by sin. And we long to see their restoration. Because of that, we love the lost, and we love the lost deeply, regardless of their worthiness of our love. And our hearts ache deeply for those who do not belong to Christ. 
especially our enemies. Because God is because never is God's character and his glory so displayed than when we show love and compassion to those who are the least deserving of it because that itself is the character of God. After all, he loved you, didn't he? So that is why love of your enemies has to be the character of the Christian because they understand they have received God's love, they are beneficiaries of God's love, and they were unworthy of it. If you understand your unworthiness of God's love, you will have no problem loving your enemies. Boy, what a hard text. showed compassion and mercy to us. Were we worthy of it? Of course not. And you know what we were worthy of. So you love those who are unworthy of it. And those who are most unworthy of it are not those who are less privileged than you. But those who are set against you those who hate you, those who cause you the greatest hurt and the greatest grief, those who cause you tremendous personal harm. Loving even when they cause you pain, loving when they cause you anguish, when they make your life so difficult and uncomfortable. But our attitude is normally, I don't do that. I need to protect myself. I, I, I won't incur suffering. I, I want to retreat. I need to look out for my interests, period. I need to do what's best for me. And maybe perhaps we would largen the circle just enough to include those who are closest to us as, closest to us as well. Our ecclesia, our church, our family, whatever. just like the Pharisees and scribes did. But die to self, suffer for the sake of love, forget it. I mean, do what Jesus talks about right before. (laughs) Right before in Matthew chapter 5, we come to our passage. Or Matthew uh, 5 verse 38. You've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. That's justice, folks. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Don't resist them. That's kind of hard for us. Don't resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you in the right cheek, turn to them the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let them have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him two Suffering for love's sake to those who are unworthy of it. Did you see in verse 39, we're talking about an evil person here. An evil person who is treating me in unjustly. 
And you know, it is of no small concern to me that you can't even get this kind of dedicated, self-sacrificial, self-emptying, selfless kind of love out of someone for their own church. And I'll tell you, if you can't even do that, then let's be honest about what that says about your love for God's glory in your suffering. I mean, didn't Jesus himself say in John chapter 13, by this the world will know you belong to me by your love for one another? And once again, I want you to come back tonight so you can see the end of this. I know you'll be surprised by the end because I certainly was. If you live in an isolation, in isolation or spirit of self-protection or look out for your own interests or take personal offense or hold a grudge, certainly can't say that you love the world. Cannot say you love the world, let alone love the church, if it isn't patently obvious to unbelievers that you do. Your love for the world should not be a point of question for them. It should be impossible for them to reconcile in their minds. Just look at me with Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, as we close. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. That is not a love that is invisible. Verse 16. Let your light shine before men. How? In such a way that they may see your good works. And do you see what happens? (laughs) When they see your love for your enemies. and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Isn't that wonderful? Because by God's grace, He has given us the ability to love as we should. Let's close in prayer. Father, What an example of love that you have showed us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A love that is completely impossible apart from your work in us. Lord, may we be identified as those who deeply love the lost out of our deep, passionate, love for the world we evangelize them and they can see our love even for our enemies in order that you would be glorified and they would come to know you as they see your grace pray these things in your son's name
You've been listening to the expository Bible teaching of our pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr, on the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, and we pray you have been blessed by what you've heard. If you have any questions about the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or if you would like to speak with someone concerning salvation through faith, please reach out to us right away. It would be a great joy and blessing to minister to you. Contact information can be found on our website. If you have any additional questions or comments regarding this sermon, would like to know more about our church, or would like to submit a prayer request, just visit us online at highpointbaptist.church. Additional sermons can be found on the SermonCast page of our website and may be downloaded or streamed free of charge. Our website again is highpointbaptist.church. Thank you again for listening. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Copyright 2018, High Point Baptist Church, All Rights Reserved.